Welcome to the AFIRE podcast. COVID is no longer an interruption of our business communities or our lives. It is quite simply a transformation. As we learn to accept this new reality, there is an imperative for investors to understand how the transformation is affecting the business of real estate. I've asked Cedric Lachance, the Executive Vice President and Director of Global REACH Research at Green Street, to talk a bit about those implications. So, Cedric, welcome to the AFIRE podcast. Well, thanks, Gunnar. It's my pleasure. As you look across public and private real estate markets with everything you see, what do you think investors should focus on now? How do you see the big picture for investors? Uh, the, the big, big picture topic here, uh, both in the US and in Europe, so the two areas in which I spend uh, all of my time, is really work from home. And that has truly changed a number of dynamics in the real estate industry. And for, for us, work from home was something that uh, we were not too sure could really take off. Uh, we've seen work from home becoming a little bit more prevalent over time, but the vast, vast majority of employers would have never thought that there was a way to be very productive and to have an engaged workforce while being in so many different locations. So the, the big outcome of work from home is a rethinking of the needs for office space. And from our perspective, what we think is going to occur, of course, is a reduction in the number of people that go to the office five days a week. So if you look at it right now, there's probably about, or there used to be, of course, uh, 85 to 90% of office workers that actually went to the office five days a week uh, pre-pandemic. And if you think about what is going to happen in the next, probably just in the next five years, and it could happen fairly quickly as we emerge from the pandemic, we think that about 60% of workers will go to work every day. Uh, so I'm talking office workers, of course. The rest of them will start getting spread between various forms of flexibility, whether it's a day or two in the office uh, or a little bit more. And then you'll have, of course, people that have the ability to never go to the office. And that group is probably or was probably in the three to five percent range pre-pandemic. We think it's going to easily double. It's probably going to be a little bit more than that as employers, again, become very uh, flexible and, and very comfortable with having a workforce in different, uh, in different areas. What does it mean for office demand? We think it drops 10 to 15 percentage points over the next five plus years, which uh, of course is a pretty big deal in a world in which one to two percentage points of demand is a pretty, demand growth is a pretty healthy year. So it is gonna create, of course, some disruption in the office business. Where we think that is most prevalent is gonna be in uh, expensive urban centers in which uh, a lot of the white collar jobs in particular finance and tech and i will say tech is probably the area where we'll see the most disruption in those industries and in uh, cities such as new york and san francisco in particular we expect to see a reduction in demand that's quite noticeable versus what was there pre-pandemic so what it means uh, in terms of cash flows of course is a is a likely difficult period, of course, uh, for the office business. 
And for us, when when we think about what's going to happen to cash flows um, in over the next five years versus the previous five years or versus our previous expectations, sorry, uh, pre-pandemic, you would expect that in office in particular, uh, we're seeing a big drop currently. And you would think that it is going to easily take the next five years to return to something that's comparable to what was happening in 2019. When you think beyond five years, uh, what do you think are some of the trends or forces that may change that picture even further once we're past pan the, the pandemic, once we're starting to open things up? What, what do you think is going to happen? Post-vaccine. So in the post-vaccine world, uh, as things return to normal or whatever normal looks like, uh, for, for a sector like office, we think actually you're going to have an environment in which your, your longer term cash flows are impaired, if you will. So we dropped our long term growth rates by 60 basis points uh, a few months ago. So if you, if you think about office being a five ish percent expected IR, dropping your long term growth rate 60 basis points is like uh, cutting more than 10 percent of long term value to the business. So it's a pretty meaningful move. Uh, we think that office actually is, is probably the most expensive sector in the private market. But interesting enough, since uh, obviously we wear both hats at Green Street, the public and the private. On the public side, the public has become so concerned about what's going to happen to office that for the first time in a very long time, office does not look expensive in the public market. So if, if you think from a, an investment perspective, while we think that office is still very expensive, in the private market, um, in the public market, it's getting close to middle of the pack versus a variety of other sectors. So Cedric, we've been talking a lot over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years about this trend, and we've been investing into the trend of urbanization and rapid urbanization, especially in the core markets. Um, how do you think that's changing and what are the implications of that going forward? So urbanization, of course, has worked great over the last, uh, I'd go even further than that, almost 30 years now, uh, where you've seen a trend of basically income growth in urban markets versus suburban markets, so we're faster income growth in urban markets markets. And income growth is what matters most in real estate when it comes to the ability to push rents. On, on that trend, though, because the city centers all of a sudden have become less appealing, the question is, uh, and in particular, I say the city centers are less appealing. And in addition to that, you have demographic forces that we've known have been coming for quite some time. And here I'm talking about the millennials. Uh, reaching their prime age for having kid number one and kid number two and having to make the big decision as to whether or not they'll continue to live in an urban environment or move to something that either is infill, relatively close or truly the suburb uh, or suburban environment uh, much, much further out. And right now what's happening is you've had uh, a lot of people will say you've had five years of disruption brought into one. Uh, I, I think it's likely true. What you see is uh, people that were perhaps delaying the decision of making the transition to a more suburban environment, uh, making it because that's where they're at from a life stage perspective. And then the other piece, uh, which we're discussing on the office side, is if you have more flexibility on where to live, it's not just moving to the suburbs within your existing metro environment, but making the decision perhaps to live in a different metro if you can take your job with you. And, and that reminds me, I made a little mistake earlier. 
I talked about office cash flows uh, declining and then recovering. The cash flows are actually fairly steady in office. It's the market rents, of course, are declining um, quite quite measurably when it comes to New York and San Francisco, but then will take some years to recover. So I just want to make that point. Absolutely. Are you seeing restructuring of those rental agreements uh, having more of a macro impact, or are we going to see a slow decline um, as leases come up? Uh, you know, how quickly is that rental uh, that that rental uh, decrease going forward? Yeah, so 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 the market rents have been a little bit sticky, but our expectation is that it's going to stop soon. The first point of pressure is actually going to be sublease space. And you're starting to see a lot of firms, the larger firms, thinking about how much space they really need post-COVID. And a lot of that goes to what we've termed effective density. So it's true that many companies today are thinking, I probably need a little bit more space per worker that goes to the office uh, to be safe in an environment, of course, for pandemic. But then if you think post-pandemic and you start providing flexibility to your workers and effectively go to the hot desking environment, and the effective density of your office, meaning the amount of square footage you need for all of your employees combined, could actually change quite meaningfully. Uh, and that's where we see that decrease in demand that I touched on earlier, the 10 to 15%. And that's how we see that uh, it's going to become stickier from a rent perspective because you're going to have less demand. But in the near term, we think that the first thing you're going to see is a substantial growth in sublease space. Uh, sublease space is always a little funky when it comes to uh, the pricing of subleases. Uh, sometimes some companies will, will basically just want to give it away or virtually, and some companies are trying to recoup as much as they can uh, from what they had in their lease or from the cost of their lease. So uh, the, the pricing itself is a little funky, but what it does is it creates an alternative that wasn't there. And so market rents eventually have to react. When you look at uh, the the pricing, both from a residential and from a commercial standpoint in some of these main markets like San Francisco or, or New York or others, they're incredibly high. Um, when we return to you know, some level of normal, do you see those kind of inherent values continuing to grow? Uh, will the, the income uh, and uh, of these folks that are at this point kind of spreading out, will that continue in those urban areas or, or do you see some softness there as well? Yeah, so it's hard really to predict what's going to happen to the urban environment. You hear a lot of people have, let's say, vested interests in promoting the urban environment and describing it as a guaranteed comeback. Uh, for us, it's a little bit more debatable. Uh, people have found out that there is an alternative and so there will be a leveling eventually. So for instance, let's move to, to residential for a minute. So residential rents in New York and San Francisco, market rents are probably down 20% today. So that will become, of course, a little bit more appealing. In the near term, it doesn't really matter what the rent is in the city proper versus a suburban environment because the city has lost its appeal. You don't need to be there to walk to work. There's not a lot of amenities that are either open or appealing at this point. So the, the urban environment is not providing what it normally does. When that returns, I would imagine that you're going to see nonetheless an appetite for the urban environment. You will still see waves of people wanting to go to the urban environment. Uh, and as you think about the millennials, probably retreating to the suburbs, we're seeing that acceleration. 
Uh, you do have, of course, demographics behind them that are about the same size, a little bit smaller, uh, but about the same size coming through prospectively. And so there, there could be demand. The question is at what price point? And I think that price point is at great risk today and will remain at risk for a period of time. So rents uh, in the urban environment are likely to be soft uh, for many years to come. You've talked to me a, a couple of times around uh, as investors that we need to be following income growth. Uh, what is what do you think are the more longer term trends in terms of income growth? Uh, what do you think we should be watching for? Yeah, so and it's really income growth at the city level that's that's interesting. Where the, let's call them the good jobs migrating to, and the concern here is that the good jobs could be anywhere because you can work from home prospectively five days a week. So that, that income growth is probably going to be diffused throughout the U.S. in ways that it hasn't been in the past. And if you think about Sunbelt markets, which historically have had a lower pace of income growth, they could benefit meaningfully over the next few years. Because you do have corporations, of course, that have been moving into better tax climates and better actual climates at the same time. So sunny and low tax has had a big appeal on corporations. And it's created a lot of movements that we've seen from California in particular, but we're seeing now from New York, New Jersey also. And what it calls sticky high taxes, which are unlikely to go anywhere but higher in California and in New York State in particular, as there are demands in terms of infrastructure and um, I'd say uh, budget deficits that continue to grow in addition to, of course, the long-term liabilities associated with pensions. You, you will continue to see pressure on people that have the higher incomes that are most um, targeted by tax rates to make the move down south. So to us, when we think we're not fully predicting income growth in that fashion, but there's certainly downward pressure from a pace of growth in the New York, San Francisco, whereas the upward benefit will be seen in the Sun Belt. And that, that will have a highly beneficial impact to the single family market in particular. So there's a good chance you'll see a continued growth in home ownership. It's, it's pretty clear the home builders are struggling to have enough inventory for the demand. And then the other piece that's very important we need to talk about is single family rental, where in many of those single family rental businesses tend to tilt uh, in particular to the south and uh, to the south of the country. And the demand is so strong. We see this in terms of the market rents that we're following. And as we track market rents uh, in the sector, the line just keeps going up and up and up. So the, the demand for the space is really strong. And that has to be coming from uh, a level of migration from outside of the various states um, in the South. And therefore, you're seeing the, the ability to pay effectively going up because better jobs are coming to these markets and therefore the rents um, can, can go up because of that income growth. What are the things that you are watching that you think we, we should be paying attention to? The stuff that keeps us up at night? Um, well, it's, it's interesting. So the, the big topic in other sectors is, of course, the, the tremendous acceleration in e-commerce growth. And it's easy to say industrial is going to win forever and retail is doomed. But of course, it's oversimplifying the reality. 
And when we look at how pricing is adjusting in both of these sectors, what I find that's very interesting is that while it's easy to be dour on retail uh, and we write plenty of dour pieces ourselves, so um, I, I guess we do go down the path of easy on that front. At the same time, when you look at the adjustment and pricing that's taking place, in particular in the public market for strip centers, you're seeing that strip center real estate on the public side might actually be uh, at the very least reasonably priced and potentially starting to tilt a little bit on the cheaper side of fare. And that's quite different than what most people would think about these markets uh, or, or that sector. And the reason for it is the migration we've talked about and the appetite for suburban environment, the appetite for um, cities that are not called New York or San Francisco actually plays quite well in the hands of those that uh, own strip centers, whether it's power centers or grocery anchored centers, actually both of them are benefiting. And it's, it's going to return a level of normalcy to their fundamentals, probably a little bit faster than people thought. And the pricing itself has adjusted so much that maybe there's starting to be a door opening for that sector. So what, what keeps me awake at night is not forgetting to look for interesting differentiated ideas when everybody is looking in the other direction. And strip centers is starting to evolve a little bit in that fashion. So uh, we think that we're going to see a fair bit of transformation, of course, in the strip environment. I think grocers continue to be disrupted by online, and you're going to see a lot of micro-fulfillment that will have to be installed uh, at grocery center, at, at grocery stores, sorry. Um, and so that's going to come with some costs. But at the same time, it, it really looks like the types of centers that we have whether it's power center or grocery anchored centers, might see stabilization and fundamentals at clearly a lower NOI than pre-2019, but nonetheless, uh, perhaps a little bit faster than was expected by the market. That is a really interesting insight. And certainly, I love the way you describe this as a few doors are opening. Uh, and I think there's going to be a lot of investors that can take advantage of the doors that are opening, that are looking at them and finding those more creative changes that are occurring in our marketplace. And it's a good chance, I think you would agree, that the longer this crisis goes on, the more there will be new doors that open. I fully agree. Um, and you see it, if you think about non-traditional real estate, which is a very important part of the market that most investors are not looking at. There's a focus on core, of course, with office, retail, industrial uh, apartments. And meanwhile, there's this giant world of non-traditional real estate that performs really well. And some of it will continue to perform extremely well post-crisis. Then you have to think about the pricing. And, and that's the, the, the flip side of what I was talking about on strips is if you think about a sector like data centers, in the public market, data centers is not attractively priced anymore because the public market has figured out that the demand, of course, is going to the moon. The developers are active, but perhaps not fast enough um, to, to sap all that demand. But the pricing has moved very quickly. And so in the public market, uh, data centers are actually not particularly attractively priced. They've done tremendous. In fact, data centers, the category that's fared the best since late February. 
But with that came what I'd say are excessive expectations for that particular business. Well, uh, this has been fascinating, Cedric, and I, I love the way that you 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 stitch together the public and the private and demand that's happening at the asset level. Uh, this is a great perspective, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, I look forward to perhaps uh, sitting down with you again uh, at some point in the next few months and getting your perspective as this unfolds. So thank you so much, Cedric, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks very much, Gunnar. Before we close out today, I want to make sure that we thank our underwriters, Prologis, JLL, and Holland Partners for making our programming possible. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.